Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 824 with Ross Dawson. If you feel the overwhelm, the overload sensation associated with just too much information, Ross has got some pro tips to help, a sharp framework, some best practices. I think you'll dig it. So you'll learn one, the five information superpowers, two, how to consume information optimally, and three, how to discern the good sources from the bad ones. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP824 and check out some of the other goodies over at awesomeatyourjob.com while you're there. Now, here's some goodies about Ross. Futurist and author Ross Dawson has focused for over 25 years on the challenge and opportunity of how to thrive on unlimited information. The initial offering of his first company, Advanced Human Technologies, was helping financial market leaders and company directors develop their information capabilities. He shared early insights in his prescient 1997 article, Information Overload, Problem or Opportunity. For over two decades, Ross has applied and consistently refined his frameworks for enhancing information capabilities. As a leading futurist, keynote speaker, and advisor, he has traveled around the globe helping business and government leaders envisage and create positive futures for an immense array of industries and issues. Big thanks to Ross for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Ross. Ross, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Wonderful to be talking to you, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom about thriving on overload, the five powers for success in a world of exponential information. But first, could you tell us a little bit about your knack for musical instruments? I understand you can play many. How did you learn how to play them all? Any tips and tricks or any special performances that really leap to mind? Well... It was just at the age of 14, I said, I just want to play guitar. So I gave a little money to my dad. He bought me a guitar. And I actually, at the time, had uh, some cassette tapes and a little book. And I taught myself. So I, I, I teach myself just about everything. And uh, so it was a guitar included. And then I worked out, okay, well, that note on the guitar is that note on the piano. And so worked out a bit how to play the piano and, uh, you know, learned a couple of other instruments and all, all self-taught. Sometimes useful, well, often useful, I suppose, to have teachers. But I think there's so much we can discover for ourselves. And in a way, we find our own ways of doing things if we do them ourselves. And that's certainly been my musical journey where I just 
do what I want to do and I enjoy it and uh, not necessarily following uh, what anyone's uh, suggesting to me I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Fun. Okay. Well, and were you in a band at some points along the way or any noteworthy performances? Yes. Yes. Lots of bands along the way. I mean, mostly pretty early on uh, when I was at school, when I was at university. And then after that, you know, a number of other bands and playing guitar, bass, keyboards, percussion, and been uh, certainly keen to get back to it for, for quite a while. And it's it's a bit harder when you have kids and you've got busy and uh, so on, but uh, working on some ways to use technology plus instruments to be able to create my own one solo show live. Uh, oh, fun. <laughs> I look forward to hearing that. So see if I can actually uh, get it on stage some point. That is good. Well, one final question on the music scene. Did any of your bands have funny names? The band names are my favorite. Oh, nothing that I... Well, I probably don't even remember them all. (laughs) (laughs) Platinum Blues was was, uh, one of the bigger bands that I was in. So this idea of those blues, but we were gilding it. With a okay, so that was, uh, I suppose, one of the, the steps along the way. Cool. All right. Well, Ross, now tell us a little bit about thriving on overload. Any particularly surprising or counterintuitive discoveries you've made along the way on this stuff? Well, I suppose the, the in a way, thriving on overload is uh, counterintuitive in the sense of we live in a world of overload, and. But what is we can thrive on it? I think this. I think this is the fundamental belief that our brains are not adapted to the world that we have created. You know, we're inc- incredible inventors, and we have made, amongst other things, a profusion of information and screens and always on. And this is something which, what we have wrought ourselves, but it is not something that our brains are ready for. So we are overloaded. We are overwhelmed. It's just natural. It's impossible not to be in a way, but. I do believe that it is possible to thrive on that. And this is, I suppose, a way where we can become, learn, change how, how we do things, what we do, our attitudes, our practices. And that, in a way, means we can transcend who we have been to be more adapted to the world that we live in. So this is a journey. We can learn things. We can progress. And so that's something which is not obvious, but I think that this this really is our most important capability that we need to develop. Okay. Well, so then can you paint a picture for if there's any cool studies or, or data or research which really reveals just what's possible in the realm of, of thriving on overload? Like what's the typical level of thriving slash floundering in the midst of, of overload versus what can really be possible if you master this stuff? There's a whole set of capabilities to develop the capability to thriving. And so the subtitle of the book is The Five Powers for Success in the World of Exponential Information. Those five powers are purpose, framing, filtering, attention, and synthesis. So we need to be able to dig into each of those and how those all fit together. But if we want to distill this, I suppose, to research and some data and some one frame, one piece of research, or now which is compounded research, is into the multitasking. And some people think they're good at multitasking. And 
The reality is that now more recent studies on what is actually happening in our brain shows that when we think we are multitasking, as we think we are doing two things at the same time, our brain is actually switching from one thing to another thing, and then back to the other thing, and then back to the other thing. Now, if we're simply listening to a podcast while we're cooking dinner, that's probably achievable. That's not too hard to go back and forth. But if we're doing something which is cognitively taxing, and we're then checking our email or trying to watch TV or whatever it is, it's it's simply not functional. Uh, so studies have shown, in fact, that those people who think they are good at multitasking actually underperform those people that don't think they're good at multitasking because they're trying to do something which is literally not possible. Our brains cannot multitask. So this is where we are put in a world where there's so much wonderful things going on and we try to pay attention to both things at the same time. And simply, yes, you can do it by switching your attention, but you will perform less than you've done before. Now, taking research at the other end of the spectrum, those who are trained and the, the single practice which takes our attention the most sustained is, is meditation, which is simply the practice of keeping our attention sustained on one thing for a period of time, where we can continue to be attention on one thing for a period of time. And you don't need to be a meditator to get there. There's other ways to be able to get there. And there are people uh, who switch everything off and for three hours at a time, aside from getting up and stretching and uh, having a drink of water or whatever they need along the way, will be focused on one task for a period of hours. And the reality is that it's only a very small proportion of people that are able to and do take that time and capacity to develop that three hours of attention span on one thing in which they can achieve incredible things. Whereas the vast majority of people, literally, their attention is not on one thing for more than literally a few minutes at a time, at best, because uh -huh. they're just distrayed by thoughts or notifications or alerts. And those are the two poles. Okay. One is eternal distraction, eternal attention wandering all over the place, where we can never achieve that much. And those people that demonstrably can keep their attention on one thing and can achieve extraordinary amounts of things in, in quite limited periods of time. Okay, well, that does sound exciting in terms of what's possible now. To zero in on that three-hour figure, I'm thinking about ultradian rhythms and just what's possible for the human organism. <laughs> is is that three-hour, like three hours, but with like a couple-minute bathroom and, and beverage break, or, or how's that unfold, that three hours? So to your point, the basic rest activity cycle is generally understood to be 90 minutes, where our brains do go through cycles of, amongst other things, ability to be more focused and less focused. And so we do need to take that into account. Now, brains are different. We could be more or less tired. There's all sorts of different factors, but 90 minutes is a reasonable guideline. So three hours is something where it is very possible for anybody to spend three hours in reasonable degrees of focus. But that's probably more than, that's as much as most people will want to achieve in a day. Mm -hmm. The way I put it is that everybody should, for at least 90 minutes, at least once a week, have a complete focus time. Okay. And 
that's something which, again, is already challenging for most people. Most people don't take 90 minutes out where there's no distractions, no nothing interrupting them, uh, where there's only one thing, they can't escape from it, and they do get on with it. And it actually takes practice and to get into that. But you can still achieve a lot as you get to that 90 minutes period. And I think that's a good starting point for most people. If you're used to just being distracted and checking your email all the time, whatever it may be, make sure you have a time of 90 minutes, no distractions, no notifications, nobody's going to interrupt you unless at the end of the world, and you have one task to get on with, and you just do that for 90 minutes and do that once a week. And that's just an incredibly wonderful starting point. And that's uh, from then, you can start to build it. So in terms of some of those cycles, one of the most famous is the Pomodoro technique, which you say in 25 minutes of focus, five minutes break, 25 minutes a focus and five minutes break, sometimes a bit longer break, and then you do that three times, which basically takes you to 90 minutes, have a little bit of a longer break, and then you do that three times again, 25 minutes plus five minutes break. And that that's works for a lot of people. Personally, I think that the more flexible approach, as in if you feel you're in the groove, then why stop at 25 minutes? Or if you just feel you need a little bit of a break first, that's earlier. So we can let our some people work to that structure, having a timer on, 25 minutes and five minutes break, that works for them perfectly. Other people, you know, I feel that 25 minutes, often I'll just want to keep on going. So I won't want to stop, but when I'm ready, I can take a stop, wander outside, pick up the guitar, whatever it may be. So I think if we get into this practice, what we do need is to find our practices and find our routines that work for us, find what times of day are the best times to do this, but just making sure that you are starting with at least carving out some time, which is this, what I call deep dive time. That's when you can achieve an incredible amount in very limited periods. Okay. Well then, so we've got a sense for what that means with regard to, to minutes of, of focused attention, which is handy. Could you share a cool story if there is a particular case or poster child, if you will, that really illustrates what that can mean in practice for one's results, career, productivity, when they get there. I think the reference point for, certainly for me, and I think for a lot of people, is writing books. Okay. There's a pretty significant proportion of people say they aspire to write a book at some time in their life. You are never going to get there unless you have the focus time and you, and you block that out. So that's where anybody can say, all right, I would love to write a book. Could be a fiction book. Could be a memoirs. It could be about this big idea you've had. It could be to show you the expert in your field, whatever it may be. And yes, before I wrote my first book, I said I think society overweighs the the value of a book. You know, being an author is an incredibly wonderful thing, and society gives a lot of value to authors. And yeah, it's a good thing, but it's. I'll play that game if that's what it is. And I have to say that after writing the first book, I thought, well, actually, probably authors do deserve some respect. But it is something where you do need to carve out the time. So anybody who writes a book will have incredible accomplishment. It doesn't matter, even matter how many thing, books or copies are sold. You will have achieved something of value, something to, to point to one which will advance your reputation, your career, your abilities. You will learn a lot through doing that. So I think it is a wonderful endeavor. And that is something which can only be done with focused time that is blocked out exclusively for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so there it is. It's kind of binary, on or off. 
certain accomplishments, such as writing a book, <laughs> are just impossible without the ability to have that focus for an extended period of time, whether it's 90-ish minutes or, or thereabouts or, or even greater. So, and then I think in in this age where there are, are different media and creations, we could maybe think of the book as a proxy or a representative for any sort of, I don't know, magnum opus or, or great work of sorts that they're, they're not cranked out in a 15 minute <laughs> break in between Instagram sessions. Exactly. To your point. I mean, if you want to be a YouTuber today, the, the bar for YouTube videos is pretty high <laughs> as in, you know, oh, yeah. there's a very high quality. If you want to do videos on a particular topic and show you're the expert, you've got to be pretty good because there's a lot of other really good people out there. So, and again, that's not going to happen by itself. You've got to say, all right, okay, I've got to work out. All right, what's my, what's my topic? What's my script? Where am I getting my video assets? What are the overlays going to be? You know, this is again, going to take focused time. It's not going to happen just by filling it in between other things and your ability, what you can do, if, for example, in a 90 minutes of focus will far exceed what you can do just trying to do bits and pieces while you're interrupted along the way. So this is a way of amplifying your productivity, but it's also a way of just creating more value from the world we have. And I think that this fundamental equation for almost all of us, our input is information. It's what we read, it's what we experience, it's our conversations, it's what we see in the world, it's what we observe, what we notice, it's what we make of the world, it's our knowledge, it's our understanding, and then it's sharing, it's creating value with that, it's building a startup, it's applying it to our work, it's making better decisions, it's seeing opportunities, it's creating YouTubes, it's YouTube videos, it's creating blog posts, it's creating articles, it's having more intelligent conversations that add value to more people. This is it's the input and the output. And both of those require this structure to how it is we bring our information together and building knowledge and the structure in our work lives into how it is we create something of value from it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so you mentioned these five powers, the purpose, the framing, the filtering, the attention, the synthesis. Can you expand upon those in terms of, I guess, the definition and maybe some top do's and don'ts for really developing each of these powers? Certainly. So just at a high level first, purpose is simply knowing why. Why is it that you deal with information, do what you do in the first place? Second is framing, which is being able to literally build frameworks for your knowledge, for your understanding, for your information, so you can piece together how they are connected. Filtering is being able to look at the information sources that you have and to be able to discern what it is that serves you, that serves your purpose, and what it is that doesn't, and being able to make sure that you leave the ones, the information that's not useful. The fourth mode is attention. So we've been talking about this idea of deep diving, We have extended focus for a period of time, but that's not the only attention mode. For example, we might have uh, scanning. You know, we might say, all right, there's a period of time when I'm just going to look at all my information sources. I'm going to stop and then move on to then perhaps reading and taking that in. So there's different attention modes. And the fifth one is synthesis. And this is in a way pulling everything together so that it's rather than just being lots of information, we can make a body of knowledge. We can understand the system. We can be able to have the foundations to build something of value. 
So these are the five powers. And I can perhaps flip over to you to dig into any specific questions. I can obviously go into greater depth on any of those, but I think laying those out as the five is is critically important. So where would you like me to, to dig into from, from those topics? Sure thing. Well, I guess I'd like to hear what sorts of practices enable us to develop and deploy each of these powers well versus what is the the antithesis, the kryptonite of each of these powers that are to be avoided. So we have to start with purpose. And the way I frame that in my book, Thriving on Overload, is around our relationship to information. So we have a relationship with money. We have a relationship with food. And the same way we have a relationship with information, there's a lot of parallels with our relationship with food and relationship with information, where we can have a a not very positive relationship with food, where we snack on chocolate all the time or eat when we're stressed and so on. And in fact, there's some quite similar habits sometimes which people can have with information. But we can also have a positive relationship with food where we eat healthy food and we feel that it sustains us and we don't have too much food when we when it's not something that we truly want. So with information, the same thing, where we can have a positive relationship with information, which is formed by going to what actually is good for us, which makes us feel happier, which inspires us, which informs our ability to achieve what we want to achieve, and uh, is something which we're not always indulging and snacking in all the time. And so I've proposed this idea of intermittent fasting information diet. So some people, for food, they say, all right, I'm not going to eat for a period of time. Then I'll come back and eat a meal, whatever. But I won't eat anything at all in between. And I think that's a very valuable approach with information as well. We can say, all right, I'm not going to check social media. I'm not going to check the news headlines. I'm not going to indulge in those things because for a period of time, there are things that I want to do. I want to play with my children. I want to read a uh, something which is important, which I've decided is something I want to spend my time on. I want to be able to write my book, whatever it may be. So we can uh, vary those things. But this all comes from purpose in the sense of understanding what it is we want to achieve, what it is we think is worthwhile, and as a result, being able to determine the information is not useful. And and the antithesis of that is simply not knowing, oh, I'm just, oh, that's interesting, bit about the celebrity news, or I've seen this horrible thing about what's happening in politics and spend some time looking at that. And none of that serves us because we're not clear on our purpose. Hmm. And so having that purpose is an absolutely fundamental starting point to simply being able to prosper and know what it is that is valuable to us in a world which is often overwhelming. And Ross, I'd love to expand on that notion of of purpose in that specific context of of reading the news. Sometimes (laughs) I'm thinking about when people read the news, they say things like, I want to be informed. And that strikes me as a little bit vague. And as far as a purpose or a goal goes, because in a way there's infinite news one might be informed or not informed about. And so it seems thin in terms of my goal in reading this news 
is to be informed. And sometimes I wonder, maybe just because I don't like reading a lot of news, <laughs> I guess my purpose, the way I go into it is like, I am going to spend approximately four minutes scanning the headlines of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal so that I have a general clue as to the happenings in the world so I am able to converse with people <laughs> as opposed to going, huh, what? <laughs> yep. Like, and so, and so that's my purpose when I go into the news. And it doesn't take that long. And I find that if I spend too much time in the news, one, I've got, I'm pathologically curious, which is great for a podcast interviewer, but not so great for a news consumer because like two hours later, it's like, okay, I've read all about the chess cheating scandal, but how does that serve me? <laughs> I found it very interesting. And I, and I know I could comment a lot about it, Ross, if you have any questions, but it's not really enriched me much. So can you share with us some example articulations of what might be some rich, useful, best-in-class articulations of purpose when it comes to approaching the information of the news? So a couple of points, just what you're saying. So I think that's wonderful in the sense of, first of all, you mentioned a figure, four minutes, and that's exactly what I say. We need to have a period of time when we say, this is, I'm going to scan the headlines and no more. But news is one category in a way of information. And it's, it's what I frame in the book as society, in the sense of what do we want to know about what is happening in society at large? And there's and we said the purpose is what is our purpose for it? What is why is it that I read the news? And you articulated again a quite clear purpose. So you can have you know, intelligent or at least you know somewhat informed conversation with people. And that, all you need to do is the headline for that uh, to be able to you know not know well to actually you know know what's happening as opposed to having no idea what's happening. And that that's entirely valid. So some of the reasons why you would uh, want to go in the news is to be a uh, informed voter. Now, that's something which you probably can catch up with just before you need to vote. You don't need mm -hmm. to be constantly... Day before. Uh, <laughs> Binge. <laughs> you don't need to be uh, constantly reading the news all year round in order to be able to vote you know, whenever it is that you vote. So that, but it's, but it's a, that's one valid reason. Another is to be able to have intelligent conversations with your friends you want to have conversations with. Another is to be aware of the things which are changing in your community. And so that gives you a geographical focus. All right, I would like to see news about my, my local community. Another is to say, you know, are there any things which are going to impact my children's opportunities? I might say, all right, I'll be, if they're a particular age, you might be looking at developments in university or college admissions or something like that. So these are things which have started to be focused. But this comes back to the domains for our relationship with information. And the, one of the first ones, one of the most important ones is expertise. We do have to choose our area of expertise to be clear. This is what I am an expert in, or I'm aspiring to be an expert in, or something which I think will be useful to be an expert in, in a few years from now. And being quite clear around that, writing that down, I will become, or I am an expert in a particular area, quite clearly defined. And that gives you clarity on what information, what sources you need to take in, what you need to distill so that you can become that expert. If you, you're just skimming across the surface, you'll never be an expert in anything, and that is not very useful in the current state of the world today. Another is in well-being. So what is it that I want to know about my own well-being or the, ones of, uh, the well-being of my loved ones? What is it that's going to help me 
to have a better diet, to be able to help support the conditions of, uh, of people in my family. So it's perfectly valid to have some passions, all right? So sports teams or, uh, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with celebrity news as long as you, you know, don't let that expand to take over all of your, your, your news. So I think there's different categories around who are helping you inf- decide what your purpose is. There is information you can look for, look in your expertise, your, your ventures, whether that's a startup or whether it's a community garden, whatever it is, in terms of your well-being, in terms of your relationship to society. So these are all things that we can think through in order to become effective. Ross, what you're really crystallizing for me is, this is so helpful, thank you. Hopefully it's good for listeners too. (laughs) But internally I have a response of frustration or irritability when I see a news headline or blog article or whatever. It says, for example, topic, colon, what you need to know. And I'm thinking, there is no possible way you know what I need to know because our contexts are so wildly different. It's like the person running the political campaign for you know this politician needs to know way more and way different things than someone who may or may not vote for that person months down the road or someone who's managing the budget or employees in that industry. I guess maybe because I'm a a content creator myself, I'm prickly or snobbish (laughs) about the quality, but it's like what you need to know. There's, there's no way one article can provide what everyone needs to know because everyone's contexts are so different and their purposes that they establish are so different. So Ross, thank you for clarifying what was simmering under the surface for me. And is it fair to say you're going to have a hard time writing a piece of content Uh, That's what you need to know for all peoples in one fell swoop. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I guess you wanted an affirmation agreement. Thanks, Ross. (laughs) But but what it comes back to is saying that we we need to know it ourselves, and we don't necessarily know that. So what I describe is we need to develop our own personal information plan. So to complement the book, I've created uh, some software, a course, where the Thriving on Overload Interactive Course, where it takes people through that journey of identifying their their purpose and their expertise and their areas and their sources and how they could use that and the times they're going to use that and how to do that. And you, you don't need the book or the course, though they're obviously designed to be as useful as possible. But we all need to decide, my, what is my own personal information plan? What is it that matters to me? Mm-hmm. What time am I going to spend on that? What time am I not going to spend on the things that don't matter? How am I going to structure my day? How am I going to structure my time? How am I going to spend time to be focused? Uh, How am I going to make space to synthesize this and pull this together? Information is the core of the value, I would suggest, of almost all of your listeners. And it's something which most people haven't spent the time to to think about as to how can I do this better? And we can all build our own personal information plan. And that starts with this idea of why, what's important to me. And Mm -hmm. from that, a lot of that starts to flow into what are the structures and the habits and the practice which will enable you to achieve what you want in your life and be happier because you're not drowning in the things that somebody else thinks is important to you, but actually isn't. That's powerful. Well, you got me thinking about email outsourcing a little but we'll we'll move on in terms of thinking about what's important to me and what's not important to me and what's important to other people that land in, in your inbox and how can you navigate that effectively whether it's software or helpers or different levels of support 
So we'll just let that percolate in, in people's heads for now. But let's hear about framing next. So framing is building a framework. So we got lots of information in, but that's all just bits of information. It only becomes knowledge and understanding when we connect that. When we say, what are the relationship between these ideas? How does this fit together? What is the, you know, what is the foundations of my understanding of this area of expertise that I'm developing? So there's a number of tools, a lot of visual tools that we can use. So we can use things like mind maps. We can use things like concept maps. We can just sort of just draw things on a piece of paper and draw lines with them. And there's now more and more software which helps people to not just note, ah, that was interesting, or that's interesting, or that's you know a really good study there, and then to actually make links between them. So there's a whole new uh, generation of software tools, including uh, Rome Research and Obsidian, but also other ways of just using simple uh, software tools such as you know note-taking tools and so on, that enables us to practice this way of framing by drawing connections in, building a lattice of knowledge, which is the foundation for how it is we can become an expert, to understand things, mm -hmm. to be able to know what the reference points and the research is that supports uh, of you know what is a, our valid ways of thinking about these spaces. And can you paint a picture or give us an example of what a frame looks and sounds like? So on rossdawson.com slash frameworks, I've created a whole set of what I find is useful frameworks about the future. But any mind map, I think, you know, mind maps are what most people are most familiar with, where you have one idea and you lay that out as a kind of visual representation of some of the ideas and, and how those fit. So we can have this, this is a, one of the, the things of good things about a mind map, that it combines a hierarchy. You have a central idea and then subsidiary ideas and then subsidiary ideas, but also be able to lay that out to be able to show some of the potential relationships between these ideas. So these are forms of structuring and, and it's, it's different for every person as to what is most uh, useful for them. It's the way in which they think. And some people like putting things in a linear document, but it's we're trying to move beyond linear. So how do we draw connections between things? And... I think often just being able to sketch things on pieces of paper, write down ideas on a piece of paper, draw lines between them as to what the relationships between those ideas are, and then you can start to literally build a picture of an area of expertise, of what it is you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now let's hear about filtering. So filtering requires, first of all, understanding what information sources you're going to go to. And this is not just going directly to media. You might be using feeds or you might be using aggregators or you might be using different tools. But it's building more and more this discernment of what it is that serves your purpose. So being clarity on your purpose, being able to guide that and what it is that you need to discard. And more and more, this is around being able to make sure that we are not succumbing to our confirmation bias that we are not just looking for things that affirm what we want to know, but we are looking for things that complement our knowledge. Uh, so one of the, I suppose, ways of shifting our thinking is to say, rather than being certain about things, whether that be in politics or society or in our area of expertise, is to start attributing probabilities to things. So we can say, I think it is 90% likely or 6% likely that this is the case. 
And then you can start to look for evidence that either increases or decreases the probability of you being right. So there's a study of super forecasters. These are people that are very good at predicting the future. And they they have this implicit way of thinking about the future or thinking about what it is they know as a probability. They're never 100% certain on anything because you can't be. But what you can do is say, I I believe this. This is what I understand. This is the probability I attribute to that. And then being able to look for evidence that will make your assessment of that more accurate. So this is a way of being able to actually go to the most surprising information to you and assessing that whether that's valid, so that you can then start to incorporate that into your mental models or your ways of thinking or your hypothesis around, for example, what will be a successful business. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I'm curious, when it comes to arriving at what are sources you think are, are winners versus ought not to uh, be delved into, are there any core criteria or questions that really help separate the wheat from the chaff? So one of the, so it's context. So I frame this as first of all, thinking about yourself. So what is it you want to be true, (laughs) for example, or what is it you're looking for? And what is it, what are your ideas already around this? You need to be thinking about yourself first in a way. Second is the source. And you're saying, well, is this generally reputable? Do generally other people consider this to be worthy? How much research did they do? And, you know, being able to assess. And there's no, no source is completely accurate. The most credentialed scientific journal in the world, Nature, has had 50 retractions in the last 10 years of things where they've published it. And then it said, oh, actually, no, that, that's not right. <laughs> Ignore it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can go to the most reputable sources and we can't actually be completely confident. There, there's some sources where we can say, well, Okay, there's not much credibility, but it doesn't mean that any source is completely off the table either. But we need to have an assessment of that. And the third one is actually looking at any specific piece of content. One of the most important things to do is to go back to its sources in whatever way, to be able to corroborate that. Is there anything which suggests this is also true? Is there going back? And it's incredible. When you get into practice of going back to original sources for what it is you read, how mm-hmm. often it is distorted, or in some case, a complete misrepresentation of what it is it's, uh, it says to be reporting on, or, you know, or simply just misleading. So the single best practice is not to take anything at face value, but to then go back, and of course, only if it's important enough to you to, to warrant that, to go back and to do your research, to delve back, to say, well, Let's see, where does this actually come from and how do I assess that? So I think this requires a curiosity. Yes, you are trying to say, yes, this is a more reputable, more likely to be true source or a less likely to be true source, concentrate on the ones which are more reputable, of course, but also to take everything with a grain of salt and to dig back and to build your own reference point as to what you believe is true and be able to find the evidence you can to support that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now could you give us any top do's and don'ts in the zones of attention and synthesis? So attention, there are six modes that I identify in my book. So the first, which we've discussed, is scanning. 
So just looking across existing news sources. Second is assimilating, where we assimilate, we say, this is worth spending time on. <laughs> it could be a book, it could be an article which you identified, and just rather than being distracted, you spend time and you take that into your body of knowledge. Uh, seeking for knowledge, exploring, and I think it's important to spend time where you're deliberately trying to find things that you would never normally find. Deep diving, which we discussed from the outset, and we were just spending a focused time on period of time. And a critical one, and one of the, the most ignored and uh, most important, really, of the attention mode is regenerating, which means stop doing, taking in information and going out in nature is the most powerful way to do that. Mm -hmm. Even just, you know, it doesn't need to be a forest it can be a single tree in a park or whatever it may be. Just getting out in nature is a form of regenerating your attention. So the best practice is to time box it. Say, this is the time I will spend on this. This is when I'll do it. This is the time I'll spend on that. And I'll do that. And to make sure that you're spending time deep diving each day. You're spending time scanning each day. You're spending time assembling each day. And you are spending time regenerating each day. And the don't is simply just... Uh, Go from one thing to another all the time, just continually distracted by the next thing. Oh, I should be doing that. Oh, I should be doing that. Oh, I might do this instead. And you never get to a, a fraction of what you could achieve otherwise. And in terms of synthesis, it really is, this is about getting to a state of mind where you can pull all of the things which you're exposed to into understanding, mm -hmm. into knowledge, into something where you have insights that other people don't. And that requires this going between the intense focus, but also the breadth, giving your mind the space in which can piece together the all of the different elements in order to build that understanding. So it's getting the, you know, in, the, in my book, I describe some of the different ways in which we can get to the state of mind where insights happen, where we can synthesize the ideas, where we can come up with insights. And I suppose the don't on that thing is simply just a burrow down all the time and not give our mind the space which it needs to be able to do what humans are incredibly good at, uniquely good at, is to pull together, connect the dots, and make sense of the whole. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Ross, tell me, any final thoughts before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Simply that this is the foundational capability for success today is this ability to deal well with information, create value with it. And I think that anybody, whether you're a beginner as it were or an expert, everyone can get better on it. And I just believe that we can all and should be spending time trying to get better at our information capabilities because that's what will drive our ability to create what it is we want in our lives. All right. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So one of my very favorite quotes is from James Cass, and it is, Finite players play within boundaries. Infinite players play with boundaries. And it's from his book, uh, Finite and Infinite Games. And that's so many things. People are so much stuck in their boundaries. And so we need to play with the boundaries of our life and work. All right. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of my favorite uh, bits of research, which studied normal people and Zen meditators, and they put on a metronome, and the metronome started ticking. And for normal people, first tick had this strong brain response, and then quickly it went down, and they just didn't notice it anymore. The Zen meditators, the first 
tick they noticed, the second tick they noticed, and they keep on noticing it. They've, they are continually seeing the world afresh. They are not becoming habituated to it, as almost all of us do. Hmm. So this shows that we can continue to see the world afresh, even, or seems to say the same. Okay. And a favorite book? One of my favorite books I've read recently is The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, pointing to the infinite potential we have as the human race. All right. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? The favorite tool, well, just in terms of information access, Tech Meme, uh, T-E-C-H-M-E-M-E, is just a one way, one place where I can just quickly get on top of all of the important technology news of the day. So it's just quick, easy, a simple tool, and makes me informed in that area. All right. And a habit? The habit which I am developing more and more is when I feel like a break is doing one of two things. One is picking up my guitar, and the other is rather than browsing through things, is turning to a book just to read for a few minutes and then turn back. Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They Kindle book, highlight it and retweet it and such? That we have to believe that we can create a better future in order to be able to create it. And I think a lot of people are very negative today. There's a lot of negative news reported. People are getting into poor states of mind. But I think the first thing is we need to believe that a better future is possible. And it doesn't matter what our true, you know, whether we think that's highly probable or not very probable at all. As long as we believe it is possible to create a better future, that gives us the foundation to say, well, what is it that I can do in order to be able to create that? So I think that's, a, in a way, the foundation of my work. And I think a lot of what resonates with people is this starting with this potential, this belief that we can create something better to drive the action, which means that we can work towards that. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? For my work in general, rossdawson.com, but uh, for the book, uh, thrivingonoverload.com, there's a wealth of resources there. There's free parts of the book, the exercises, uh, the introduction, there's the overload course, there's a podcast, there's a whole set of resources. So thrivingonoverload.com is a, a wonderful place for those people that want to go further on this journey. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Just spend a time. It doesn't matter how much time, just spend some time thinking about what it is you do currently with your information habits and just find one thing which you could do better and do that. All right. Ross, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and fun amidst overloading information. Great pleasure to talk with you, Pete. I really love what Ross had to say about how often when he goes to the original source material, it is totally different and sometimes directly in contradiction with how that material has been reported. Maybe it's a scientific journal article or any number of things. And I have found that to be the case myself as well. And, and one, I just found that reassuring, like, wait a minute, am I misinterpreting or misunderstanding? Because it sort of sounds like the opposite of what the article said this piece of research says. Yet I'm looking right here at the data in black and white. I don't see what's going on. Am I mistaken? So anyway, if you've had that experience, I found that just reassuring that apparently this happens all the time. 
and we're not fools. <laughs> and, and we can feel good about trusting what we see with our eyes when we go directly to the source. And to make sure you do go directly to the source when it really counts, because that secondhand stuff may very well be dead wrong. So again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links I'll be referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP824. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.